Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Are Australian citizens more likely to die in a foreign war or in a war at all uh, in the next five years, or are they more likely to die from getting, you know, burned alive or, or, or swept away in a flood? We need to do a real risk assessment on climate change, uh, on you know national security, economic security and kind of social fronts, and, and we need to do it regionally because climate change doesn't stop at the water's edge. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from policyforum.net. In this episode... James Mortensen and Anastasia Capetis join Will Stoltz to explore the increasing threat of natural disasters in Australia and the suitability of the Australian Defence Force to respond to them. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the lands from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Anastasia, James, thank you both for joining me. Thanks thanks for having us on. Thank you so much. So I wanted to speak with you, um, both of you, because I think you've both in your own respective ways thought very deeply about the intersection of environmental issues with Australia's national security. You know, this is this is obviously a pretty vivid topic for um, many Australians currently who are being impacted by you know, historic flooding events um, in Queensland and New South Wales. But to those that might be kind of generally sceptical as to why we should look at environmental issues and, and natural disasters through a national security lens, um, I'm wondering if we can just start by having you both kind of explain why we should actually consider these issues through a national security perspective. In, in many cases for... If- it's, it's difficult to consider it just through a national security lens because essentially climate change is about everything. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's a deep, structural, cascading, multi-level um, kind of phenomenon. But in terms of classic national security, I think it's interesting to think about um, if you compare, say, climate change to the damage from climate change to a country, say, to a, a major invasion of a country, it's a longer, longer tail, but nonetheless, the damage is same, if not worse. But the other issue for climate change is that, you know, it's an equal opportunity kind of destroyer of systems. Um, so it's not just one country being invaded, um, it's all countries. So just in, at, in the most simple terms, in terms of damage, um, to nations, uh, cost to nations, um, this is the kind of thing that we're talking about. The thing with with climate change as well is that there's really acute effects like nat- natural disasters and, and cascading natural disasters. So instead of having one nat- natural disaster at a time in a year, countries might experience sort of up, up, up to 10 or, or 15. That quickly overwhelms um, resources and, and abilities to respond and to adapt. 
But there's also cumulative effects as well. So, you know, changes to sea level temperatures, which more slowly over time start to denude fish stocks on which populations might depend mm. on protein. And that's, that's Indonesia scenario. Um, or changes to the Gulf Stream, um, for example, which ch- might have a tipping effect on weather, um, but again, um, affects all these other kinds of ecosystems in the, in a slower way. So there's those things as well. So in a sense, it's understandable why um, people can't get their heads around the dimensions mm. of, of the challenge that we face here. Again, from a, again, a really just sort of straight up kind of security angle, it's often said that um, climate change will metastasize cu- current conflicts, but of course it will also drive new conflicts. There's a school of thought out there that says that at the end of the day, all conflict is about water and access to water. Um, so a lot of people are looking at things like the Himalayan watersheds, the Mekong Delta, um, the, uh, the river systems in Africa and the river systems in Europe as possible lo- loci for future conflicts um, mm. as well. In, ter- in more immediate terms, really immediate terms, um, and especially in terms of uh, the idea of having to respond to natural disaster crises here and in our n- near region, of course, when militaries are used to, d- to deploy in that way, uh, it means they can't do other things. Mm-hmm. So he- all of a sudden mm-hmm. we have, you know, a-, a force that's really focused on high end war fighting. That's what they're trained to do and trained to support. Um, doing a very different kind of mission. And we haven't really seen um, uh, the government in Australia, at least, uh, give extra resources uh, to the ADF for, for those purposes. I'll, I'll leave it there for now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know because, you know, from my perspective, I'm echoing everything Anastasia said, which I think, um, you know, especially taking broadly from a more, you know, international security angle, let's say. I mean, I'd only add, I suppose an attempt at a sobering note, which would be, you know, if if security essentially will say it's the maintenance of the viability of the state, right? You know, our, the Australian government's responsibility to national security is to ensure that the Australian community still exists in the way that it wishes to exist can come moving forward. Just from a purely domestic Australian perspective, uh, you know, everything else be damned. Like we've set our nation up to operate under certain circumstances. We know, we should know all by now that, that this – the continent itself is mm. carefully balanced, was carefully balanced, is probably no longer carefully balanced. And we've set communities and systems, resource acquisition, you know, agriculture on a variety of different points on the on the continent. Um, and they are simply <laughs> no longer viable or may, may not be viable moving forward if all things remain equal um, within a short amount of time, not a long amount of time. So especially, obviously, the Murray, the Murray Darling has been a perennial issue for Australia since colonisation. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's obviously from the last five to ten years, any, anyone who's paid attention can see that it's becoming more and more uh, tenuous uh, and really reaching a point where we can't necessarily assume that we can plant more almond trees and it's all going to work out. Um, and that that's just one example, unfortunately. Um, so... You know, in what going back to the sort of the main point, like on, in what way is you know climate intersecting with national security, at least from an Australian lived experience point of view, in the next five to ten years? I mean, well, it's right now, obviously, um, as you said, with the floods, um, but 
you know, from my point of view, especially water systems, how they interact and, and not so much where the water is and where it's going and, and how much we have, but simply our capacity to rely on it in the ways that we traditionally have. Mm. The amount of upheaval that I think that is already starting to cause is such that um, it's a need, we need to fundamentally address what our community expectations are and therefore the viability of that community moving forward. And and you think that the 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 best way to start to address those kind of existential challenges is to to frame these environmental issues because you know you mentioned you mentioned water and and the fact that that's been a persistent issue for Australia kind of well before we even really had a conception of of climate change. Do you think still that that framing these issues in a national security um, through a national security lens is the best way to mobilise action? Look, I mean, here I am speaking with the National Security College yeah. as an employee of the National Security <laughs> College. Um, I don't say that the honest answer. God forbid, I don't care. Yeah. Yeah, like, does it matter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if that's yeah, what yeah, we yeah. need to do. Yeah, I mean, I, this is, and it, in a way, it's because it's part of a, this wider conversation of what is national security. Yeah, the yeah. broadening and deepening of national security since the Cold War, and like, it finally, okay, using the Murray Darling as an example, right? Yeah, when when Federation was first getting put put together. You had South Australia and New South Wales as separate colonies going to war over what was going to be included in the, in the Constitution. And there are, in fact, specific clauses of the Constitution to try and, uh, you know, make them feel happy about it and mm. join up mm. because South Australia's economic security was contingent on river traders, paddle steamers, and New South Wales' economic security was contingent on uh, extensive irrigation from agriculture and even – in 1898, South Australia was worried about the amount of water that New South Wales was taking, stopping the riverboats from getting through, right? So in those days, they did they call it national security? No. Yeah. Okay. Would we call, a, you know, an impasse that prevents a community from getting economic security national security? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, like ultimately, you know, we need to pull whatever policy levers are going to get the job done. Yeah. Um, which I suppose does make it national security. If it's something that needs to happen, then sure, I'll call it that. Yeah. But ultimately, look, if if the if the minister for water wants to roll in, or the you know whoever the agriculture department, anybody, any, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be yeah. a fence. It doesn't have to be like let's just bloody fix it. Yeah. No, I, I totally, I, and I don't want to dwell too too much on it. But it's it's just um you know these these framings of issues are important for the policy community about how they kind of mobilise resources and action. Um, you know, I, I want to go now, I guess, to specifically Australia's national capacity to to respond to um, the myriad of different um, disasters and issues, uh, you know, that Anastasia, you kind of touched on. Like, um, as we mentioned, you know, extreme flooding in New South Wales and Queensland are kind of just the most uh, recent instances of a kind of seemingly rolling series of domestic crises impacting Australians, you know, including, you know, even I suppose including um, COVID-19 pandemic and the bushfires. And, and in all these kind of instances that the ADF have been a central part of the response um, and so there's several questions I want to ask about that particular issue. But but firstly, kind of in your view, just as a general starting principle, is the military the best placed agency from a from a capability point of view to actually undertake this kind of first responder role? Um, in many ways, no. And um, and and the, and the ADF will acknowledge that again because they're not set up. They can do HADR, but they um, can't do it alone. And they really depend on a whole bunch of other government services and agencies um, to make any impact on the ground. Um, so uh, basically, yes, they can help. Mm. They're not particularly postured to help right now. 
in 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 the ways that we will, will need um, you know that kind of intervention. Um, and so we'll need a real rethink of the ADF's mission, um, but also resourcing. Mm. Yeah, and, and I suppose that's what's um, perhaps not articulated as clearly in the public debate is the opportunity cost of by having the ADF, ADF so frequently deployed domestically, um, what you're undercutting them being able to do um, in the more traditional military sense in terms of their preparedness to deploy abroad, that sort of thing. Um, but, but James, I wanted to, to ask you, I guess, taking a, a kind of more philosophical um, approach to thinking about the role of the military in a liberal democratic society, do you think that there are risks or downsides by, have, by the fact that we are deploying our, our military domestically so frequently? Risks, risk, uh, um, and with all, with all respect, I appreciate it. It's a, it's a you know, good question, genuine question. Like risk as a as a category by which we can make these decisions, I think it's almost like we bandy it around sort of too much. Risk is against risks against what? Yeah, let's say right. Yeah. Is it risks against lowered war fighting capacity? Well, yeah, yes, because it will. I mean, but we we know that. Um, and I, from what I can understand, or from what I've seen, and from what I've heard, you know, in a professional context, that seems to be the risk that we are most interested in weighing it up against, mm. right? Like uh, the risks of people getting washed away in floods or the risk of property damage, whatever, versus the risks of our decrease in war war fighting capacity. Mm. Um, Now, I'm not necessarily saying that the ADF is the best responder or anything like that, but to me, maybe a more suitable – if we were going to talk about in terms of risk, it would be more suitable to say, well, uh, are, are Australian citizens more likely to die in a foreign war or in a war at all uh, in the next five years, or are mm. they more likely to die from getting, mm. you know, burned alive or, or or swept away in a flood? And if the answer is the latter, then, you know, I'm not saying, again, to be clear, I'm not make, necessarily making an argument that the ADF should be the ones to do it, but it would certainly seem uh, reasonable to expect that it could well be part of their remit, or at least that there needs to be some adjustment to that remit if, if they are here to protect Australia, right? But... Even that said, yeah, the idea that we're, we're weighing up against risks, um, I would like to think, and this is definitely um, the uh, the sort of luxury of of being an armchair critic rather than actually having to make the decisions. I appreciate that, but um, in a in a in a nation placed as as well as Australia is economically, uh, you know, technologically, etc., um, I wonder the degree to which we have to weigh up risks. Mm. And the degree instead, we should be looking for a let's call it a minimum viable product. Yeah, right. Now, for minimum, minimum viable product is that people not getting burnt alive because we need to be able to respond to what we know is happening. I, I believe we have the capacity. It might be more an, a question of what are we willing to trade rather than what we are willing to risk. Well, and and this is this is kind of what I was getting at. I suppose is is just by that idea of having. In in a in a liberal democratic country where we as as a starting principle believe that the military should operate within a kind of fairly clearly defined bounds and be oversighted by civilians and all that sort of stuff, that by having the frequent deployment of the military on Australian streets, whether it be, I mean, we're focusing here in this conversation in, in disaster response, but obviously, you know, we've seen, you know, in the wake of COVID, soldiers in nursing homes, these sorts of things. Like, are there things that we need to be conscious of about 
um, I suppose, impacts on on social cohesion and pu- public trust by seeing the military deployed so frequently in a domestic way. Because, you know, if, if I put myself in the shoes of a, a first or second generation migrant to Australia that's come from a country where the military has a very negative impact in society and I'm potentially, you know, sitting in a nursing home or something like that and I'm seeing a lot of uniforms around me, that could make me quite um, potentially quite nervous. Is uh, Do we need to be factoring those wider ramifications into um, our thinking around deploying the military domestically? I mean, I'd say absolutely. Um, and, you know, obviously, uh, well, Will knows full well, um, looking into messaging mental health and, mm. and, and how these things might affect national security moving forward, um, something that I don't think we do enough of. Something else, though, um, it reminds me of um, talking to talking to uh, I had the luxury, especially teaching here and talking to a lot of guys that were actually on the ground in flood response, fire response in the last two years. Something that um, I've found overwhelmingly from from all, all of them was that they actually wanted to do it which mm. is interesting. Um, also, at the same time, though, to pay respect to it, they were all, without without fail, they were all worried about how it was going to, how they were to be expected to do it because it hasn't been necessarily made clear to them mm. where this extra training, where this extra time, where this extra capacity is going to come from. Um, but the other thing, more relevant to your question, I think, is one bloke who talked to me in particular told the story of um, cleaning up after the last floods, you know, 2020, 2021. Um, and cleaning up next to SES personnel mm. and RFS personnel who'd uh, helped out and everyone in the muck, knee-deep in the muck, you know, trying to shovel mud and get everybody's belongings out of there and people walking past, in this particular location at least, um, pulling up the soldiers constantly to take selfies mm. and thank them so much for their hard work while the SES people were just knee-deep in muck, keeping on going, you know. Um, and the, what that did to their morale, what that did to their conception and, and the concerns that they had obviously about exactly where you're speaking, like people in fatigues out in the public, which is not their traditional role, what effect that might have, whether it's positive or negative on any particular way. I do think though, yeah, you, you're getting to a bigger, maybe unfortunately more politically charged question of the optics of having fatigues on the ground, whether it's a nursing home or a fire or a flood. Mm. It might not, might not please everybody, but I can see how it's certainly um, – say, inverted commas, gets the job done mm. from an optics point of view. Um, and I would be interested in, in in trying to appreciate how, if we were to use the ADF as moving forward or continue to cement this role, if that's something that we need to manage and, and if we if we did want to manage it, how? I think just uh, also, I mean, when you keep doing that, you, what you're send, doing is sending a message that to get the job done in any way, shape or mm. form, you need the military, that the military is the only institution in Australia that really works. And that's not mm. only not true, but can, can can become a bit of a self-fulfilling pro- prophecy if resources keep going to the, you know, yeah. the ADF and, and, and none of the other agencies, which is so critical here that the ADF just can't replicate and could never replicate um, health and emergency services, you know, for example. Mm. We'll be right back. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So, um, you know, we've, we've spoken there about the issues we need to factor in when we're deploying the military domestically. But thinking about it afresh, I suppose, what should um, an alternate agency or force look like, um, particularly in our kind of federal system? You know, is there – there have been suggestions by some saying that we need a, a dedicated civil defense force, like a, a kind of separate – potentially a separate service or a dedicated federal agency for these types of things. You know, do you, do you think that's the way to go or – Given we exist in a federalization, a, a, a federation, do we need a, a more decentralized approach to these things? I'm not sure, Anastasia, you might have a view. Look, there's 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 so many plans out there that real experts in disaster response have suggested, mm. um, and I'd encourage people to go and have a look at those. But I'm just going to talk about a couple of general principles, um, and and one is is that. Uh, in terms of centralization or decentralization, what you need is a decentralized approach that's highly coordinated so mm, that both right, those things right. have to happen at the same time. And that kind of makes it a bit more anti-fragile. Um, so there's that. Um, in terms of another principle, if we want to keep global warming to 1.52, we cannot afford fires like we had two years ago. Mm. And everywhere else in the world can't afford that either. So we need to come up with a plan to minimise um, that as much as possible. We haven't really begun to, to do that. And not only that, we have to be able and willing to help others in the region um, do the same. Mm. So we need to help Indonesia um, put out wildfires extremely early. I mean, God forbid, we, we also need to think about places like Russia uh, and their Siberian, you know, tiger forests. Uh, how are we going to help Russia cope with that scenario? We also need to think about, you know, the other big carbon things like the Amazon, you know, as well. So I, I just wanted to point out that it's not just, uh, you know, fires here that we need mm. to be thinking about, but fires globally. Now, in at COP26, there was some thinking about that in the margins, um, and uh, that's conversations that's happening kind of at a sub-government level. But as a real principle, that's one of the things we need to really think about. And James can probably talk more about water uh, <laughs> as, um, as, as, as a basic um, thing that we need to organise um, around. I mean, well, I suppose... Look, I'll use water as I suppose as 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 the segue. I, I think mm. um, yes, there are as as Anastasia said, there's, there's plenty of plans by people who know far more than than me on on possibilities. Um, but from a again armchair critic point of view, I'd echo and controversialize, I suppose, like the idea that we need to organize ourselves to create a force or to you know supplement the ADF to be a force or etc. 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 It's to me, still worthwhile, still something worth doing, but it's worthwhile doing in the sense of um, putting a Band-Aid on is worthwhile. It's just that we better bloody disinfect what we're putting on. There's no point, <laughs> yeah. right? So if we are talking about how we can move forward, yeah, sure, disaster team, disaster force five, 
you know, you know, ultra edition, let's do it, new uniforms, whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Love yeah. it. Also, yeah, how about backburning? Yeah. How about um, making <laughs> – how about uh, getting our act together with the Murray Darling? Um, how about actually measuring how much water we're losing out of the Great Tartesian Basin? Mm. How about uh, all of this sort of stuff? How about actually minimising, right? Because ultimately it, it – it, you don't need to read expert disaster response, you know, manifestos to understand that the the prevalence of these disasters is occurring because of our relationship to the environment. And so to we could, you know, match the ADF dollar for dollar, create, you know, our new disaster force, a supreme team. Mm. Um, but we any conversation that's that sees sees to siphon that off from the greater issue mm. it's not a matter of sort of bashing the green drum it's just it's just matter of fact talking about national security or this is a national security issue well ensuring um, that we are we are extremely responsible with taking water out of the great artesian basin is is a national security issue now because mm. communities all across northern new south wales south southwestern queensland absolutely rely on it and otherwise you've got 100,000 people you know uh, 200 years worth of uh, of 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 whatever commerce if you want to put it like that um god forbid that all of a sudden uh, evaporates and that 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 hurts the hurts the bottom line mm. i hate talking in those terms but it hurts the bottom line so um i let's go i you know i'll actually draw something in the sand um domestically look we got to just get our act together mm. start start i mean especially to say to use the example backburning new south wales um you know in the 2019 bushfires it being revealed that you know, our, our budget for actually organising backburns had dropped by such a ridiculous amount. I don't even remember what an amount mm. was. Um, well, you know, let's let's do that before we really sort out the disaster force. On the flip side, let's get a disaster force. I'm all for it. Let's stick it with the ADF, but let's make it a dedicated disaster force and let's make it not simply for domestic, but we're also going to deploy it overseas and we're going to be good global citizens and that's going to be a very positive thing in every manner. Look after our look after our backyard. It doesn't just help them; it helps us. It helps everybody. So, in a way, just to um, echo um, James's points, which I agree with completely, uh, a lot of this needs to start with departments of treasury and finance. Right. So, we need to start factoring the true cost of climate change into our economic modelling. We haven't done that. That's really step one. The second thing, from a broad all of government point of view, we need to do a real risk assessment on climate change. Uh, on you know a national security, economic security, and kind of social fronts, and, and we need to do it regionally because climate change doesn't stop at the water's edge. So I think those two things. Mm. Just say you know for an incoming government, if you're listening, I mean you know what should we do? Do those two things first, and then you can try and figure out how to allocate the resources that we're talking about here. Yeah, it strikes me that there, there is kind of a cultural shift that needs to happen within the Commonwealth because. The, the Commonwealth predisposition is, is so often to take charge and be the leader in all of the, of these kinds of aspects, particularly in a national security context. But as, as you were kind of highlighting, James, this issue is probably the most wicked problem that the Federation can confront because of all the different jurisdictional issues about who's responsible for what. But it, it, as you were saying, that it sounds like the Commonwealth's greatest value add is is probably in those kind of that larger strategy forming the the, the assessments level that to then inform what is hopefully a kind of I suppose more joined up um, uh, federal federal response. But it 
it's certainly a wicked, wicked problem. I can't think of it. I can't think of a more kind of existential challenge to, to the functioning of a federation, really. But I mean, like that's that's sort of to me part of you know talking about wicked problems. I mean, like obviously in its physicality, it's a wicked problem, right? But then like, the fact is, people like the band aid much more than they like the dead hole, right? Like no one likes the sting. We like knowing it's all better. So going for those sorts of measures is it's not it's not particularly popular. It's not particularly sexy. On top of that, or fast, right? Yeah. As on top of that, the, the the perennial political issue of is it is it is it something that I'm going to see results of in, a, in an election cycle? Probably not. Is it something that's going to cost me? Probably. Um, not particularly fun, and like all of this seems to to me, yeah, it it, it snowballs. It adds up. And and to add the last sort of point, go back to you sort of one. I think your first question, right? National security, or to what degree is mm. this national security? Like the last thing is that yes, it's existential. Yes, it's fundamental. Yes, the security community, the defense community, has 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 to engage with it. They are engaging with it, and in a lot of ways, they've been engaging with it probably quite robustly for for longer than some other areas of government. Certainly, and that's great. Except because of its because of its physicality because of its wickedness because of these various component problems it's sort of almost it's both the quintessential security issue and also a completely abnormal one mm. right so it's it's fundamentally a security issue in the sense that it's it's existential it's everything it's total it completely determines the future of our community and the viability of it moving forward at the same time security the security apparatus and the security expectation or I want to even call it the security culture that we live in is very much um, the exceptional circumstance, mm. the circumstance where th- the rules don't apply anymore and we need to swoop in and solve the problem now, right, and then hand it back to regular policy. Except that probably that's, you know, so that's why I think one of the many reasons we look at a disaster force before we look at mm-hmm. the more fundamental, you know, brick and mortar stuff that would be traditionally in, in the purview of traditional policy. I'm not saying it shouldn't remain in the purview of traditional policy, but it does make it hard to determine who and how is how we're going to act, I suppose. Um, I just, you know, uh, would say uh, I think James, you said, you know, this all looks, you know, uh, all this sort of action for climate change looks hard and expensive, and people have to sacrifice stuff in the now, and that's really boring. I think, like, juxtaposed against that is a kind of view of most recently expressed by Thomas Friedman in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, which is that. Um, because climate change fundamentally change, changes geopolitical power, the way that power is distributed and people's natural geophysical advantages in one way or another, especially around energy, changes all of that. The countries that are going to succeed in the future, geopolitically or in any other way, or just mm. in a survival sense, um, are going to be the ones that start to frame uh, their national security as resilience. Um, and that is a very different set of problems than framing national security a- around an invader or an external force. Um, and that, so that's one thing. So that, you know, on a national security front, those that are able to do that will have a geopolitical advantage. But the second thing is economically, of course, and that those countries that are able to make the energy transition um, that are able to, you know, put resources um, to some sort of resilience and adaptation. They're the ones that are going to be the economic winners, and and in, you know, in classic geopolitical terms, um, have more more power. Um, so it's 
on, on the one hand, it's like, oh, God, like, you know, we don't want to sacrifice stuff now, but we kind of already are. If yeah. you look at sort of COVID and and what we've dealt with um, in, in, in the natural environment over the last few years, we've paid a lot already. The costs are already, you know, really, really mounting. Um, so I guess, you know, it's probably better to think of all of this pursuing those sorts of policy, policies as really, you know, not just nation building, but, you know, this, this is helps us, uh, become, uh, safer and more powerful in, in a, in a, a system that is changing so rapidly under our feet. Mm. Um, I think Russia's the news. So I'm just going to talk about Russia. Um, I've interviewed Fiona Hill, um, uh, earlier this year, who was ex Trump administration official on Russia. Um, and we were talking about, the fact that Russia's long-term um, trajectory, economic trajectory, is so dire in the next 10 years as the world mo- moves away from fossil fuels. They haven't been able to replace that or, or you know, uh, diversify the economy. And there's a political problem because all of their political elites depend on oil and gas for their living and they can't imagine doing it any other way. Mm. Um so they also suffer from this real sort of resource curse politics that makes them really, really kind of rigid in terms of response. Um, and at the same time, they're going to suffer pretty catastrophic climate change across their landmass. So they, and at the same time as that, they have um, a system where no real political transition um, is 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 possible, mm. uh, even after Putin. Uh, you know, dies, which inevitably he will. Um, <laughs> really? Are we sure? <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, there's no clear political process. So mm. Russia's dealing with a whole bunch of existential crises at once, not just out of this Ukraine war and the sanctions that uh, they're also kind of accruing. So we don't, as a country, as a fossil fuel pro- producer as well, we don't want to be in, in that mm. in that. Um, in that case, and, and luckily we have a, a, slight, a much more diversified economy um, than Russia does. But again, I think we just need to start thinking about our futures in in very different ways. The kind of future that we we saw for ourselves un, under most of the you know the modern era is no longer mm. a viable one, and we have to start thinking in another direction. Yeah, we need we need to embrace this um, this idea that there is strategic advantage in in resilience. Um, I want to. I want to just tease out the the resilience point, though, because, um, and it's, I think you were kind of you were dr- driving us in this direction, James. I mean, our relationship with our environment has to change in Australia. You know, um, we know the impacts of climate change. We know that a significant amount of them are, are already kind of baked in to the world that we're going to be living in. Is there kind of a sad reality um, that we? We have to confront that you know we are in a more hostile continent to what we've historically existed in, and therefore, perhaps as citizens, our expectations and our relationship with what we what we can expect from our governments to respond actually have to change. That we that the resilience has to actually have to be kind of devolved to us as individual citizens. That there's not going to be a kind of cavalry coming over the hill to respond, help us respond to every natural disaster, and therefore the way we need the way we live needs to change. I I'm really wary of that sort of thinking. Okay. On one level, right? On 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 a on a very very um you know angry old man level, I'm I'm like, look, when I'm president of the Australian Republic, uh, air conditioning banned for everybody <laughs> except you know nursing homes and <laughs> yeah. hospitals, right? Yeah. And you can live with it mm. <laughs> if you don't like the heat. Move to Tassie. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. On one level, sure. 
Um, but that's that's just my grumpy old man times. I mean, when I sit down and try and be reasonable, I think it's really unfair. I think it's fundamentally unfair to push onto the average Australian. And so use an example of things we could do, like backburning, for example, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, okay, insurance, right, which, which is getting some media traction finally. But, um, yeah, people people can, can no longer in, insure what little they have Right, because it's no longer necessarily financially viable. Mm. For example, um, and so then when when the worst does happen, if the worst does happen, then who picks up those pieces, right? And then you're going to turn to them and say, "Oh well, I know that you inherited your parents' house when they carked it, and it just happens to be traditionally on a floodplain that never used to get flooded, but now it does." So move on. Tough, yeah, right. That these are the these are the choices that we have to make. Mm. I know I appreciate you. Maybe more we're more thinking about well turning off your aircon or, or paying more for petrol or, or that sort of thing. I think that's a very slippery slippery slope though, and I note that it's a slippery slope that we it would be irresponsible to go down until, as Anastasia said, we actually the people who are in a position to model this stuff model this stuff mm. and can actually help shape community expectations and can actually help you know, program how we can move forward. If, for example, a government did model all of that and say, look, we've crunched the numbers and the fact is I know you're paying a lot for fuel but you're just going to have to keep paying a lot for fuel because we really, we can't, mm. right? Mm. And maybe we can ease your, your pain in some other ways, right, electric car subsidies or whatever else, okay? Mm. Then, sure, right? But I think it's fundamentally unfair to expect people to sort of Tighten the tighten the bootstraps, tighten the belts, um, in a in a in a fashion that isn't orchestrated because we know fundamentally that this problem is created specifically by the way we are currently orchestrated. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. Like if 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 this is a problem of how we've organised ourselves over the last hundred years, we can't simply expect from the ground up that individuals are going to sort themselves out and it'll all work out. Um, yeah, I think it really needs to be led from the top. Just echo that individuals can't deal with structural problems, and this is a structural problem. Part That's a really, excellence. yeah, really quick way of <laughs> saying that ramble that I just had. Thank you. Yeah. No, and it, it's a good point to note on because that's what we seek to achieve here you know, at the National Security College is to provide insight and advice and hopefully some kind of um, you know, provocative thinking in, in terms of to try and spark how you know, structural changes, whether it be on, on this topic or any other kind of national security issue, how they might happen um, in, in the Australian um, policy-making system. So, James, Anastasia, thanks so much for taking the time to have a discussion with me today. Um, I really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Paul. Thanks. Well.